How many of you have ever fantasized about coming into unexpected, unanticipated wealth? Anyone? Just sitting at home one day and you get a phone call or you get an unsolicited email and you have been a part of a will from some distant relative and have been left an absurd amount of money. How many of you just, you think about that. That's a good thought. How many of you also know your family well enough to know that ain't going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. We have a ministry lineage in my family, which means we're dead. Not happening. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15, and we're going to touch on that thought in a way. As I was studying and preparing for this, I read that in West Texas, there is a famous oil field known as Yates Pool. During the Great Depression in the 30s, the field was a sheep ranch owned by a man named Yates. Mr. Yates was not able to make enough money on the ranching operation, and because of the days, he, like many others, had to live on a government subsidy. Month after month, he was grazing his sheep over those rolling Texas hills and was troubled, like many of us would have been, about how he could pay his bills, just survive and stay alive. Then a seismographic crew from an oil company came and visited him on his ranch and they told Mr. Yates there might be oil on his land and they asked permission to drill a wildcat well. So he signed a lease, of course. And at 1,100 feet on Mr. Yates' ranch, they struck a huge oil reserve, which would produce about 80,000 barrels of oil a day. In fact, 30 years after the discovery, a government test of one of the wells showed that it could still produce 125,000 barrels of oil a day, And Mr. Yates owned all of it. Unanticipated, unexpected, unbelievable wealth. You see, the day Mr. Yates purchased the land, he also received all the oil and mineral rights on the land. And yet for years, he lived on a subsidy, barely able to survive, potentially positionally a multi-millionaire, but in reality, he was poverty-stricken. Why? He simply did not know the oil was there. It was there, and he owned it. He just did not possess it. And he receives this unbelievable, life-changing sum of money, and it's generational in its value. I cannot think of a more important question of a more viable analogy or illustration for us to arrive at John 15 than that. There's a problem that faces Christians, believers today. Systematically, we have been taught, we have pursued a life that would honor God, seeking God's approval, fervently trying to make something of our lives by our own fleshly efforts. Planning, resolving, deciding, working, but still impoverished. Spiritually speaking, poverty stricken. I could say to you before we begin to read in John chapter 15, I have an abiding problem. 
I have an abiding problem that is an abiding problem. And this morning we're going to undertake a study that I think is going to be a great help to us. It's going to enable us to learn, to relearn perhaps, that victorious, fruitful, spiritual living is not the byproduct of our efforts or of some self-improvement course Not improving our standing or engaging in a program, but rather resting in a relationship of possessing what we already own. If you have your Bibles here in John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking. Very shortly, Jesus will be heading to the cross. Really, it's only a few hours away. He's speaking to the disciples. He's just been with them in the upper room discourse. I imagine that at this point in time, Judas is already gone and Jesus is walking with the eleven to the garden of Gethsemane where he will be arrested. He's choosing his words carefully. He's investing his time wisely. He's desperate for the disciples to comprehend this truth because he will no longer be physically with them in a mere hours of time. In John 15, 1, Jesus is speaking and he says to the disciples, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Get this, for without me, ye can do nothing. Without me, Jesus says to the disciples, You can do nothing. Now that's a striking, staggering statement because physically Jesus is about to leave the presence of the disciples. What does he mean without me you can do nothing? All of your efforts are to no avail. Without me you can do nothing. This is an allegory. This is an extended metaphor. This is a word picture and it teaches us much In this allegory, this extended metaphor, this word picture, we've been invited into a Palestinian vineyard. Jesus says, take a look at this vineyard and understand that my father is the owner-operator of this vineyard. He's the husbandman. I, when you look out there and you see the vine, that's me, Jesus said. I am the vine. You believers, you my disciples that are here, you are the branches. Jesus is making it very clear. Now you see in this moment of time, Jesus has come to save everybody, but few have responded. In fact, Judas at this point in time is in the process of betraying Jesus. Peter, who is in this group of disciples, is very shortly going to deny Jesus three times, once by even cursing. The other ten are going to abandon Jesus. We know it does not mean that we have to be perfect in order to fulfill this because the 11 disciples were anything but perfect and Judas is already on the outside and he plays an important part in this allegory. 
So Jesus is desperate for the disciples to understand something. If they're going to survive, if they're going to thrive, if they're going to navigate life without his physical presence, and the first thing that Jesus says to them is, I am the true vine. Now that sounds like a strange statement, but it's of utmost importance. I am the true vine. Here in this verse, Jesus gives his seventh and final great I am. I am am the true vine. Why is he clarifying, I am the true vine? All throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was depicted as the vine that God had planted. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet paints a picture of the nation of Israel being planted as a vineyard by God. When he comes to inspect it, he expects good fruit, but what he finds is bitter, corrupt, vile fruit. The nation of Israel's disobedience and failure. In Psalm 80, a similar analogy is presented. God is talking about taking a vine from Egypt and transplanting it. And for a while, the vine flourishes. But at this point, the hedges are broken down and wild animals ravage the vineyard. It continues, you have Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea that will speak the same. Israel is the vine, but they were disobedient and unfruitful. So when Jesus looks at his disciples as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, I am the true vine, it is important and they listen up. The force of his words were in effect. You all know how Israel is pictured as a vine. It was meant to produce fruit. Well, I'm the fulfillment of all that that imagery suggests, Jesus says. Now he says in verse 1 something that seems like an addition. He says, and my father is the husbandman. My father's the caretaker. He's the vine dresser. He's the owner. He's the operator of this vineyard. Why are we forced in this moment to see Jesus as the vine and his father as the husbandman? It's vital. The father does two things. It's clarified for us in verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he, my father, taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So God the Father does two things. One is the branches that do not bear fruit, that are dead wood, he can delineate. He takes those branches and he casts them into the bonfire. And the branches that bear fruit, he purges them, he prunes them so that they will bear fruit more fruit. Now hold on just a second and let me interject this. Some people perceive that verse 2 is teaching that you can lose your salvation. I hope I don't need to spend a lot of time refuting that view because it contradicts a lot of other scripture. But let me be clear. Jesus is speaking In John chapter 6 and verse 39 and 40, and he makes it clear that he's not going to lose any that the Father has given. It's eternal life, not temporary life. Jesus speaking says this, and this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that all of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at that last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. If you are a believer, you are eternally secure 
in Christ. Jesus says this as well a few chapters later, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I'm not saying that verse 2 is teaching that you can be grafted into the vine, that you're a part of the vine, ripped off the vine, and thrown into the fire. But it does require that we understand what's being taught. If the husbandman does two things, one, he takes away dead branches, dead wood, and throws it into the bonfire, and he purges fruit-bearing branches, then we are smart enough to grasp there are two kinds of branches. There are branches that do not produce fruit, and there are branches that do produce fruit. And in this allegory, we study that out. They represent those, this dead wood branch, who profess to believe in Christ, But their lives give no evidence that they are genuinely saved. They do not bear fruit. They do not have the stamp of genuine salvation. I believe it is clear in this context that that Jesus is directing us to think about Judas Iscariot. Judas the betrayer, Judas the one who will go and betray Christ. In verse 3, just note what we read, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. It's not accidental. I think that Jesus is directing us to a conversation that he had with the disciples earlier, back in John chapter 13, when he was washing their feet, and Peter doesn't want his feet washed until Jesus tells him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Then Peter says, well, then please wash my head, wash my body. I want all in. And Jesus, in effect, says this in verse 10 of 13. He that is washed needeth not to save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. The but not all, I think, is talking directly about Judas. And so what we grasp here is that this dead branch that God the Father takes and casts into the fire is one who professes, but is not a believer. We could probably bring that forward and say, since Jesus is the true vine then the branches that are in there that are taken away and cast into the fire are not representative of true believers, but rather those who have deceived themselves, much like Judas, into thinking that they are believers because of what they do. They're Christians because they go to church. They're moralists or they know what to say, where to go, and how to act. But they lack genuine evidence, genuine Christ-likeness. Their claim is bogus. And so they're taken and cast into the fire. Not about losing your salvation, about never being saved at all. There's two branches and the father does two things. The husbandman takes the branches that are dead wood and casts them into the bonfire. But there's another kind of branch, a branch that bears fruit. And the father also interacts with that branch in the fact that he purges it and he prunes it. If I were to settle on a third P, which is vital in any pastoral communication, he purges and he prunes it and that brings about pain. How many of you enjoy going to the dentist? No joke, in the first service, there were two people who enjoyed going to the dentist. Oddly, they were only sitting about four feet apart. It was strange. I don't enjoy going to the dentist. 
In fact, what I would prefer is to be my own dentist. If I were my own dentist, first thing I would do is go in and empty a can of laughing gas and then just drive about the town, have fun. The second thing that I would do is upon my examination, I would take a mirror in my hand. I Looks good to me. Set the mirror down. I have been to the dentist. You say, you mean you wouldn't take any of the sharp tools and dig around your teeth? No. You wouldn't fire up the drill and get in there? Absolutely not. You wouldn't gargle with any of the disgusting, tasting things? No. I would look in the mirror. I would give myself an A plus and I'd move on. I don't like pain. I don't like discomfort. I don't want that kind of inspection. And what we're grasping here is this. God the Father, the owner, operator, the husbandman of the vineyard is going to prune and purge branches that produce fruit and that will cause pain. And it's a necessary pain. It's a plus. That's a fourth P. I get tips at the end of the service if I really hit home runs. All right, four P's. That's getting up there. David said this in Psalm 119.67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now... Have I kept thy word? He's going to come back in four verses and he's going to say this. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. There is value in the purging and the pruning because it brings us back to God. It helps us to apply in obedience the mandates of scripture. Here's what the father does. Only God can tell who's real and who's bogus. And he takes the dead wood and casts it into the bonfire. And if you're in the vine, you are producing fruit. And if you are producing fruit, then the husbandman will come and purge and prune, which brings about pain, but it is for us. It is for our good. Now, no doubt about it, sometimes the purging that we are enduring is because of our own sin. And we need that. But it's factual here that there are also times where we are bearing abundant fruit and we are purged and pruned nonetheless so that we might bear more fruit. Whatever the reason for our pruning, just like going to the dentist, we'd rather do it ourselves. Because if we do it ourselves, we avoid all truth. We avoid all pain. We're too short-sighted to prune ourselves. Only God in his sovereign wisdom can do that. We also grasp this simple truth. God's hand is never closer to us than when he is pruning us. When he is doing the severest cutting, when he is there, it is fact that he's also the nearest to us. The more that we are pruned, the more that we are purged, the more we are like Jesus Christ, the more Christ is in our lives. We need that. I'm not a farmer. I don't understand caretaking of vines. Again, as I was studying, I came across an author who was writing, and he was talking about moving to the country one spring. He sounds a lot like me upon moving to the country. He said, as we moved to the country, I looked out and I noted that we had a fence that we shared with our neighbor. And on the fence, we had a large grapevine, and my family and I were looking out, and we were thinking that in the fall we would really enjoy some of the grapes that were there on that grapevine. But a few days after moving in, he noticed his neighbor was out there hacking away at the vine with some large shears. 
Obviously, he's as dumb as I am. He was concerned that his neighbor was going to kill the vine, and he thought, I'm going to go out there and try to disarm the guy by being funny, a little diplomatic. So he walked out to the fence that they shared, and he said to his neighbor, I guess you don't like grapes, huh? (laughs) You know when you try to be funny in a situation like that? Neighbor looked back at him. He said, no, we love grapes. He said, okay, wait, time out. You love grapes and we love grapes. Why are you out here hacking away at the grapevine? The neighbor, understanding as he looked across the fence at the confusion of his new neighbor, he assumed this is a city boy who doesn't know much about grapes. So the neighbor explained to him, he said, well, son, listen, we can either grow ourselves a lot of beautiful leaves filling up this whole fence line or we can have the biggest, juiciest, sweetest grapes you and your family have ever seen. We just can't have both. He knew that to bear good fruit, the vine had to be pruned. We've been sold this bill of goods that if we are in the vine, if we are believers, life will become better and better as we ascend closer and closer to heaven. We reject the idea that pruning and purging are a part of things or we immediately blame it on the fact that sin is involved. No doubt we require purging and pruning when sin is present, but it is also fact according to scripture that if we are bearing fruit, he, the husbandman, the father, will prune us so that we will bear more fruit. Pain is a part of spiritual life. It is inescapable, it is factual, it is within scripture. Jesus said, I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman, there are two kinds of branches, dead wood and fruit bearing, and my father will throw the dead into the bonfire and he will purge the ones that are producing fruit, it's fact. And then Jesus said something that is incredibly potent. He says, without me, ye can do nothing. Without me, you can't do anything. Again, we have in a systematic way instructed people and coerced people into believing that they must gain God's approval by their fleshly efforts, by their behavior. And rather than producing good, edifying, encouraging culture within a group of believers, it has released a toxicity A competitiveness that rather than edifying and encouraging beats down and discourages. And Jesus is setting it straight. The main point is made clear in verse 5. Spiritual fruit bearing is the direct result of a relationship. That is the key to fruit bearing is dependent on the relationship that we have to the vine. Part of our spiritual poverty Our weakness, our impotency, our lack of Christ-likeness is due to the fact that we believe we can produce fruit. So we try desperately, time after time. The truth is, we can't produce fruit. We can only bear fruit. And what we do to get around this is we'll install a program into church and we'll say things like, listen... You must be a soul winner, so attend, 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 and we'll know that you're on the team. Yet Jesus looked at the disciples and he said to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. 
Jesus very explicitly says, follow me. Walk down the same road that I'm walking down. Talk like I'm talking. Eat what I eat. Sleep where I sleep. Listen to my words. Emulate my actions. And in the process of time, because you are like me, you will become fishers of men. Becoming a fisher of men is a byproduct of Christ-likeness. It's not the goal. Christ-likeness is the goal. And so Jesus is telling these disciples who are a group of real tryhards, abide in me if you want to get anything done, for without me you can do nothing. You must be like me, and in being like me you will produce fruit. Stop exhausting yourself, wearing yourselves out, fatiguing yourself. One old preacher said the branch is nothing more than a rack from which the fruit of the vine hangs. It is the sap from the vine coursing through the branch that produces fruit. Likewise, it is the life of Christ flowing in us that produces anything worthwhile. The Apostle Paul said it this way. This is Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Any self-reliance in there? He'll come back in chapter 2 and verse 13 and say this, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Any self-reliance in there? I'm not saying we go to sleep and we simply wander our way through life. We're going to expand on this momentarily. But what I do believe is for most Christians, we believe that salvation is a work of grace And after that, it's all on us. Salvation is a work of grace that God does in us. And after this, we're on our own. We've got to produce all of this fruit along the way. And we can't do it. You ever decided you're going to get better at something? My wife and I just went and visited our daughter in Sweden. And the Swedish language is very challenging. But in my four and a half days there, I was going to master it. I try to say things and people would just look at me like, I don't know what you're saying. Clearly, you're from the States. And I would say, how do you know what your accent? I'm like, I don't have an accent. Yes, you do. Where are you from in the States? I would say North Carolina. No one on earth knows where North Carolina is. So here would be, I would say New York. Uh-huh. Disney World. Uh-huh. Halfway in between. Oh. Or my other go-to was, have you ever heard of Michael Jordan? Yes. Where he's from. Okay, like where he's from? No, kind of. Same state, state, province. I don't know what you people want from me. I can't master this in a week, but I'm going to try to get better. And in order for me to try to get better, I've got to listen to this app. I've got to interact with you. I've got to be laughed at and told that I'm wrong, but I'm going to diligently work on this. Here's what I believe we do as Christians I'm going to work on my patience. That's what I'm going to do this week. This week, October 23rd, 2022, I'm working on. It's Patience Week for Chris. So when I get into my car and I back out of my driveway and I start down the road and every idiot in Charlotte is on the road with me, I'm going to be patient with them. Intentionality. It's Patient Week. When I hit the office and you walk in and that person who seems to have already had six Red Bull and five cups of coffee hits you like a ton of bricks instead of rolling your eyes and throat punching them, you're going to be nice. It's patience week. 
And everybody that you interact with, even those that drive you batty, it's patience week. You're going to be good to them. You're going to really work on your patience. One wrote this and said, okay, Lord, I got three areas of my life I'm going to straighten out. Let's see how I do today. How am I coming along? What's the progress report? We start looking under every leaf for fruit. Results, results, results. So we put the fruit of the Spirit on a list. We put it on the refrigerator, on the dash in our car. We say, let's see. As I've referenced, this is Patience Week. I'm going to work on that characteristic in my life. After all, the Bible says fruit of the Spirit. You know, I got to get this one. It's time for me to be virtuous. It's time for me to be meek. This week, I've got to love. And that's not my natural setting. I believe largely that a tiger doesn't change its stripes. If you want to know what kind of 18 or 19-year-old I was, it was like this. I got to say, if you want to know what kind of 60-year-old I'm going to be, I was kind of like this. My personality, my wiring is set. If spiritually speaking, I'm the same now as I was at 18 or 19, we have a severe problem. If spiritually speaking, I'm the same at 60 as I am now, we've got a problem. I'm not talking about adapting our personality. I'm not talking about more results because of how hard we try. I'm saying, listen, if you pursued the fruit of the Spirit one at a time, by the time you reached the end of the list, you would have already lost your patience and love and would have had to start over. You know that's to be true about yourself. Why? Because by God's grace, he's not going to allow us to do something by ourselves that he has already said only he can do in us. That's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. All I can be is an available branch where his character is displayed. Jesus is turning the tables on the way we naturally think. Working our way through this, Jesus said, without me, you can do a few things. No. Without me, you can do something. No. Without me, you can do nothing. Why are you always trying to adapt to a new environment? Why are you systematically beating people down with the expectation that they produce results? They cannot do it. Why have you created this caste system of spirituality or attendance or whatever box you want people to check? It can't be done. You can't produce it. You can only bear it. And without him, you can't do any of it. You say, well, I'll tell you what, the people that show up more love God more. Do you know that there's people that show up that don't even know God? Some of the most separated will end up dead wood on the bonfire you say, how? Give me precedent. Okay, they were called the Pharisees. Can you be any more try hard than the Pharisees were? Pharisees showed up, man. Pharisees memorized the law and the Pharisees burn in hell. For without me, you can do nothing. Just walk through it. Verse four, abide in me. Verse 4, abide in the vine. Verse 4, abide in me. Verse 5, abideth in me. Verse 7, abide in me. Verse 7, my words abide in you. Verse 9, continue ye in my love. The main thrust of this whole allegory, extended metaphor, word picture, is driven home by those three words, abide in me. All two other words show up a lot. Bear fruit. Abide in me. How do I do this? I want to do this. I want to abide. Well, here we go. 
To abide in Christ, one wrote, on the one hand, is to have no known sin unjudged or unconfessed. No interest into which he is not brought, no life which he cannot share. On the other hand, the abiding one takes all burdens to him and draws all wisdom, life, and strength from him. It is not unceasing consciousness of these things and of him, but that nothing is allowed in the life which separates from him. Which means if we are going to remain in fellowship with Jesus Christ, we must be filled with the Spirit. John will come back in verse 8 and he'll say, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. The authentic stamp of discipleship is fruit bearing. In fact, according to the mind of Christ, when his life flows in us and through us, Spiritual fruit bearing is the expected result. I could really opine on this. Why some of the most separated people are actually some of the least loving people. Because they have created their own list of fruits. And the fruits that they are chasing do not emulate Christ's likeness. And so some of the most separated people who are result-oriented and striving to gain God's approval by their own efforts absolutely are bereft of meekness or patience or faith. Because these two things are, 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 are complete polar opposites. I must abide in Christ. I am spiritually poverty stricken, though I have a great reserve of oil on my land. I own it. I just don't possess it. I have a letter coming to me. I've already received it. I have absurd wealth. I just live so poverty stricken, so destitute, so poor. What is the commandment of Christ? Well, he'll come back in verse 12 and he'll say, here is my commandment. Love one another. They always make things so complex. You could underline those words, bear fruit, abide in me. He's talking about spiritual fruit. It's interesting that the metaphor of fruit bearing is used throughout the New Testament. You say, okay, pastor, I've walked with you through this. I've heard your four Ps. I'm proud of you. That's five. I'm pumped. That's six. Keep going. I get it that Jesus is the true vine. Believers are the branches. God is the owner operator. I get it. There's two kinds of branches. Some are dead wood into the bonfire. Others are bearing fruit. Father will purge them so they can bear more fruit. Without him, we can do nothing. We must abide in him, which means we got to keep sin confessed. No known, unconfessed, or unrepented of sin. We got to bring him in on everything. We got to be in the word. I've got to abide in him. Help me grasp what does this fruit look like? Well, the New Testament teaches us this. Do you realize that when you praise and thank God, your lips are considered fruitful? Listen to Hebrews 13, 5. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So I've got to be intentionally thankful. I've got to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Sure, great, but it says in that verse, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Even that is, if I'm like Christ, I'm grateful, I'm thankful. When you acknowledge God's control over your finances, do you realize your gifts are considered fruit? The apostle Paul was writing to givers. He says this in Philippians 4, 17, it's not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. 
Back a few chapters in John. John writes this in the words of Jesus, 12.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So do we all go dig holes and we die and bury ourselves and we bear fruit? Nah. Seriously, don't do that. It'll get me in a lot of trouble. But you know what he's saying there? He's saying if you would sacrifice your own plans, your own preferences, your own ambitions, your own ideals for the sake of God's plans and dreams and preferences and ideals, then your life is considered fruitful. Die to yourself. Do you realize that if we are in Galatians 5, and 23, where the fruits of the Spirit are being listed. If these things are in our lives, we are fruitful, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These are not personality traits. I don't naturally love a lot of people. It's not in me. I'm revolted, I'm arrogant, I'm revolting. I don't love a lot of people naturally. What, what we're learning is this. If I'm like Christ, I will have the love of Christ in me. So that the love that people sense is not the warmth of Chris Edwards, undeniably, it's warm, I know. But it is the love of Jesus that they see. It's not peace because I just refuse to acknowledge any hardship in my life. I have the abiding peace of Christ in my life. We have so thwarted our pursuit of these things because we're chasing them from the wrong end. If you pursue the fruit, you'll never have it. But if you pursue the relationship of intimacy with Jesus Christ, eventually you bear fruit. Pursue God Abide in Christ. He works in us. The characteristics of Jesus come out of us over time. It happens to those who abide in him, walk with him, develop a relationship with him, and eventually we bear the same qualities as him. Fruit bearing takes time. That's hard, right? Fruit bearing takes time. It's the result of a relationship, not a self-improvement devotional guide. It's not programmed and you say, well, I'm reading a book. Great. I think that can be a help to you and your spouse. Wonderful. Don't be deceived. You cannot produce fruit. You can only bear fruit. I have spent much of my life under the gun to produce fruit. I have allowed myself to be backed into a corner where I am graded, where I'm under pressure, where I am coerced, where I have taken these boxes that I look at and I try to find every ingredient that I think means God loves me or someone else will at least perceive that I'm trying and so I've tried to force every one of those ingredients into my life and in doing so, a toxic culture abounds and I'm beat down and I'm discouraged and I find I don't even really want to be around it. I have an abiding, abiding problem. But if I will keep sin out of the way of me and Jesus Christ, and I will not block him off from any area of my life, I will surrender my plans and will and ambitions and preferences over to him and die to self. In the process of time, as I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I will begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
You say, well, that doesn't look like, you still then have to adapt the color of your grape to the color that people want it to be. Not on me. Can't bear that pressure anymore. All I can do is bear the fruit of the Spirit. All I can do is what God wants. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. Under God, he was responsible for leading hundreds of missionaries into China's interior for the first time. In 1869, when he was 37 years old, he entered a new phase of life. It was written of him that he began in John 15, 11 to get a deeper and more constant and more satisfying experience of simply abiding in Christ. His son wrote this in 1932. Here was a man almost 60 years of age bearing tremendous burdens yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters, any of which might contain news of death, a lack of funds, of riots, or serious trouble. Yet all were opened, read, and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace, his power for calm. Dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources. And this he did by an attitude of faith, as simple as it was, continuous. Yet, he was delightfully free and natural. I can find no words to describe it save the scriptural expression, in God. He was in God all the time and God in him. It was the abiding of John 15. Now, I'm not being cheesy with this. Our lives lack tranquility and peace. And I do not believe it is because of extenuating outward circumstances, though they are tumultuous. I think it is simply a lack of abiding in Christ. I think a lot of our fatigue, our depression, our depressiveness, I think that a lot of the reason that we're beat down and apathetic and the toxicity that can exist is simply due to the fact that we do not abide in Christ. We're striving for fruit. We're looking under every leaf. We're just not finding it. Not because we're not trying to love and trying to be patient and trying to be gentle and trying to be meek and trying to be temperate, but because we're not like Jesus. And if we would abide in Him, it solves those issues. Would you please bow your heads for just a moment and close your eyes? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.